going to be full. It's always full. And it'll be the same in your church, I promise. It'll be full. It'll be full of people like me. Full of people who haven't been to church in a while. Full of people who think they might be critiqued or analyzed or judged unfairly. Full of people who don't have God in their lives and aren't exactly sure how to get him back. But you know what, before I step in, I need you. I need you to do something that's probably a big deal for you. You're going to see me this week, and I need you not to walk past me, and I need you to work through your fear because I'm working through mine, and I just just need you to invite me in and if I act like I'm not interested in going to church with you still I need you to ask me to come I need you to help me see God (laughs) I don't even know what that means I need you more than you know because look at the end of the day God said he loved me enough to die for me I mean, that is the claim, right? And if he died and he didn't stay dead, your church will be full this weekend. Your church could be full this weekend with people just like me. Different face, different skin color, different age, sex, or social status. But make no mistake, I could be sitting right next to you. I just need you to invite me in, that's all. Nothing more, nothing less. And nothing complicated. And nothing driven by guilt. Just invite me in. I need you to. Find your place in your Bibles with me today at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 17 through 21, and I invite you to follow along. We'll also end up in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 in just a few minutes as we continue this series of messages about seven habits. And obviously today we're talking about evangelism or about witnessing or, if you will, sharing the gospel and how important it is that we invite people to come to Jesus. Follow with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there are people maybe sitting in this room, certainly watching us, others that are in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, in our communities, in our places of recreation. They're all around us. They just need someone to invite them in. They just need someone to say, Jesus loves you, and Jesus will save you. But Lord, our fear sometimes overcomes us. Our uncertainty uh, sometimes causes us to be reticent. But Lord, you have given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You have given to us the word of reconciliation. And Lord, I pray that we'll recognize that everyone has this task. Lord, while there may be places in the church where I can't serve or someone else can't serve, there is no one who cannot serve in this way, in the sharing of the good news of Jesus with others. Please help us, Lord, to see that this is one of the seven habits, one of the routines, one of the practices of those that know you and those that love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was thinking over this past week about how to begin this message, and I started thinking about the funerals that I've conducted since I've been a pastor, a pastor here for almost 40 years. I asked Mary to go get down all of the, the records where we keep a record of all the different funerals, and I've conducted nearly 500 funerals since I came to be pastor here. If you add to that number the number of funerals where I have been to the visitation or I have been to the funeral itself, though I was not leading in the memorial service, you have two, maybe three times as many more services. I have spent my life in funeral homes. I have spent my life comforting, grieving families. I was called to do that. I'm thankful that God gives me that privilege, though I wish nobody ever had to die. I'm thankful that I get to be there to help families when they're hurting. Of those funerals that I have attended or I have conducted, the vast majority of those have been for people who were believers in Jesus. They went out of this world knowing where they were going. They knew they were going to close their eyes in death here and open their eyes in heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ. They knew that because they had trusted in Christ as his or her personal Savior, as their personal Savior. But there are a handful of those services that either I have conducted or that I have attended through the years of people who did not know Jesus Christ. They were not ready for death. They did not know what to expect after death and where they were going to spend eternity after death. I, I can't even begin to describe to you how difficult a service like that is. I can't even, even express to you the kinds of emotions that go on within the pastor, let alone within the members of the family when they're coming to the last service 
to memorialize a loved one who has died and they have no hope. They have no expectation of ever seeing that loved one ever again. And if they know anything of the scripture, they know that that loved one has been separated from God forever. I can't even tell you the depth of the struggle and the stress, the heartache and the heartbreak when you're conducting a service like that. But it doesn't have to be that way. The reality is that Jesus stands ready to save anyone, and he stands ready to save everyone and to take away the fear of death and to give the certainty of life eternal with God. He promises to do that for anyone and for everyone who comes to him. You can hear the families struggling at those moments. They will say things like this. Well, maybe in those last moments before he drew his last breath and he was gone from us, maybe he realized and remembered what we told him about the gospel. And maybe in those final moments, he called on the Lord just before he died. And maybe we'll see him in eternity with God. Or you'll hear them say something like this. I remember when they used to go to church when they were just a child. I remember when they got baptized. and I remember that service. And maybe when they were a child and they got baptized, maybe they trusted in Jesus at that moment. I realized that there really wasn't anything to give any evidence of that that followed that. But maybe in those moments they trusted in Jesus and maybe that the Lord saw that and the Lord knows that and the Lord will give them entrance into heaven and maybe I'll see them again. In a moment like that, the world of your loved ones is shaking all around them. The ground beneath their feet is shaking all around them. They're looking for a place, some place, where they can have solid ground and they can stand there with some measure of hope and some measure of certainty. And they're grasping for anything, anything, any solid ground, any stable place to stand where they can have assurance, just even for a moment, the assurance that they might see their loved one again and their loved one might not be separated from God. I'm not sure why anybody wants to, to die without the peace of knowing where they're going. I don't know why anyone wants to live without the certainty that when this life comes to an end that they have a place to be with God forever in eternity. I don't know why anyone wants to leave their family with those kinds of feelings and emotions like the ones that I and other members of our pastoral staff have seen too many times just hoping maybe somehow, somewhere they made it right with God. Maybe. Oh, maybe. Dear friends, God doesn't want us to live that way. God doesn't want you to live that way, by the way. 
God wants you to live with a certainty that when God calls you in death, that you're going to meet him and be given entrance into heaven. He wants you to have that kind of certainty. I'm not excited about dying. The older I get, the less excited I get about it. I'm not excited about dying because of the process that you go through in order to die. But I'm not the least bit afraid of what comes afterwards for me. And I'm not the least bit concerned for my family and them wondering, where will dad be? Where will granddad be in eternity? Will we see him again? I'm not the least bit concerned about where I will spend the rest of eternity. I'll spend it with Jesus Christ in the place that God has called heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, actually the whole book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry. There have been those who have come to the city of Corinth and they have been calling into question Paul. They've been calling into question his ministry. They were the opponents of the gospel. They were the opponents of the Apostle Paul. So Paul writes this letter. He has more than one purpose, but he writes this letter in part to be able to defend his own ministry. In doing so, he gives us some incredible statements that you simply do not want to miss, and especially you don't want to miss a ministry that God has committed to every single one of us. I want you to notice again, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I don't know if you know this or not, but I want to make sure everybody that's listening to my voice today hears it clearly. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sins once and for all and forever. And Jesus Christ is offering to anyone and to everyone, no exclusions, the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus for the gift of eternal life, for the promise of forgiveness of sins and the assurance of a home in heaven with God forever. He is offering that to anyone who was willing to receive it. I want you to back up a few verses in this text, and I want you to listen in verse 13 what Paul says. For if we are beside ourselves, that's what some were saying. Paul's sort of outside of himself. He's beside himself. He's not even making good sense. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. For... The love of Christ compels us. What drove Paul forward? What kept him preaching the gospel of Jesus? What kept him in the face of all of the opposition and all of the persecution continuing to share the good news that Jesus saves all that come to him? It was the love of Christ. His love for Christ, but more, more importantly, the love that comes from Christ. And that love shut him up, compelled him. It hemmed him in so that the only thing he could do was share what he had experienced and what he knew to be the truth. And what was that? Verse 14, because we judge thus that if one died for, notice the word, all, then all died. And he died for, notice the word, all. 
It's possible that three times he uses the word all, he's speaking only of the Corinthians. All you Corinthians. He died for all of you Corinthians who believed in Jesus, except for the fact that in this context, the word all can't just be the Corinthians. Because in verse 19, he says, that is that God was in Christ reconciling. Do you see the next two words? The world. The world to himself. In other words, the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was a death for every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. Nobody was excluded. Nobody was left out. He died for all, he says. One died for all. And then he says that statement, then all, then all died. You say, Pastor, then if all died when Jesus died, then that means there's a universalism that all of us are ultimately going to get into heaven some way, that all of us are ultimately going to make it into the presence of God, except for the fact that in the very next phrase, he tells you that's not true. While Jesus has died for all, for the whole world, not everybody believes that message. He continues in verse 15, and he died for all. Now, notice the distinction that those who live should live no longer for themselves. Not everybody lives. Not everybody believes in Jesus. Not everybody trusts in the finished work of Christ for eternal life. In other words, what I'm telling you is that objectively in the past, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of mankind's sins once and for all and forever. But subjectively, every person has to receive that gift for themselves. Every person has to trust in Jesus for himself or herself for you to be made alive in Jesus Christ. In other words, the death of Jesus was sufficient to pay the penalty of all mankind, but it's only efficient when you believe in Jesus for yourself, when you trust in Christ to be your Savior. Paul's not talking about universalism here, that everybody, no matter what you believe, ultimately is going to get into heaven. He's simply stating that Jesus died and left no one out, and his death was for all the world. You say, can that possibly be true? Absolutely, it's possibly true. Hebrews chapter 10, verse, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says that he tasted, Jesus tasted death. Do you know the next words? For every man. He tasted death for every man. Or how about the words of John uh, the apostle who said in 1 John chapter 2, and he himself, that is Jesus himself, is the propitiation, the satisfaction of the justice of God for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, for the whole world. Or how about 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, verse 4, speaking of God who desires all men to be saved. Or how about the most famous verse there is in all of Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the who? The world. That 
How many can believe? Who can believe? Whosoever believes. Anyone believes in Jesus won't perish but have everlasting life. In other words, the apostle Paul says, look, the ministry that's been given to me, I am compelled, I am driven, I am shut up to, I am hemmed into one message, and that's the message that Jesus died to pay the penalty of every man's sins. And those who come to faith in Christ are made alive and made alive so that they will live a new life. He gives two reasons for that message. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul had looked at Jesus one time and misjudged who Jesus was. Paul says, I no longer look at people as I used to see people. But then he says, verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's been made alive. He's one of those for whom God objectively died, Jesus objectively died once for all, forever, who has subjectively received Jesus as his own personal Savior. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, that's you. Some of you have been coming to hear me preach. Some of you have been watching me preach week in and week out, and you've not yet trusted in Jesus. And Paul comes and says to you, anyone, even you, sir, even you, ma'am, even you, teenager, college student, even our children, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That little phrase, in Christ, is strictly Pauline. You almost find it nowhere else outside of the writings of Paul. It's a phrase that means who's saved. We're put into Jesus because we're in Jesus Christ. We are secured. We are saved. We are made to be the children of God. It's a term of salvation. If anyone is in Christ, they have seen that Jesus objectively died for all of mankind's sin and has subjectively received it for themselves. They saw that his death was sufficient for everyone and Therefore, it was efficient for them because they believed the message. They were at that moment. That person, whoever it is, is placed in Christ. They are saved. They are in Christ. Their sins are taken away. They're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The free gift of eternal life becomes theirs. A new purpose in life is imparted to them. A promise of a home with God in heaven forever and forever and forever. They're in Christ. Therefore, if anyone, that's you, sir, that's you, ma'am, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Please understand that what Paul is talking about here is not some form of reformation. It's not some more form of, uh, of rehabilitation. It's not some form of re-education. What he's talking about here is a recreation it isn't that he takes something that's old and he retools it a little bit and he tries to patch it up and put some paint over the rusty spots and tries to put some you know, tape over the holes that are in it. It is that he makes something completely brand new. Isn't that great news? When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes a brand new creation. 
It's in Jesus, in his salvation, made possible by that objective death, that sufficient death of Jesus that is subjectively received by you efficiently, effective for you because you believed in Jesus. You were made new. You were made new. You don't have to live with your past. You don't have to live with the shame. You don't have to live with the guilt. You don't have to live with the fear. You don't have to live bound to your sins. Because Romans chapter 6 says he frees us. We may choose to sin, but you're no longer a slave to sin. Why? Because he makes those that are in Christ brand new, a new creation, old things, old things. They're all gone. Wouldn't that be a great message? Can you think of things in your life that you wish you didn't have to think of in your life? Can you think of experiences you wish you had never had and things you have done that you wish you had never done and things you had said you wish you had never said? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. In other words, there's something wrong when we claim to be followers of Jesus and claim to be the possessors of eternal life, but there's not something new about the way we live our lives. There's something significantly wrong. That's not the way it's supposed to work. When God made you, created you new, he made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. He intended for you, as he says back in verse 15, to live in a different way, no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's supposed to be a different way that we live. We're not supposed to be living like we used to live. You understand that when we trusted in Jesus Christ, it says that we were put in the heavenlies. We were put seated positionally in the heavenly places. But a lot of us are living these low lives, this low life. We're not living according to our position. We're living in opposition to our position. We're not living in that new life that God has given to us. We're not living according to that new creation he's made for us and of us. We're living a life that's the opposite of that very thing. And it ought not be that way. I mean, the reality is this. If you're a new believer in Jesus, you should be hungering and thirsting for the Word of God. Like a newborn baby sincerely desiring the milk of the Word. Why? Because you want to grow thereby. And as you grow thereby, what happens righteousness begins to be produced, not just in your position, that was taken care of when you trusted Jesus, but in your practice, righteousness becomes the, the means that you begin to live your life out in a right way before others so that they can see Christ in you. And the fruit of Christ begins to be displayed in your life. And when you don't live that way and you don't hunger for the Scripture, 
what Hebrews chapter seven should be, chapter twelve should be be taking place in your life. God says, "All that I love, I chasten." In other words, you've been made new. It's supposed to be a different way of living, a different kind of life. You're not supposed to be enthralled with the world that's around you, consumed by the things of this world, wanting to fit in with the world around you. You should be wanting to stand out for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not who you used to be. You're somebody brand new. And now as you hunger for the word and hunger for the things of God, it begins to nourish you and you begin to grow and righteousness begins being produced in your life. The fruit of God begins to show up in your life. And when there's not that kind of righteousness and fruitfulness and there's not that desire for the word of God, the other side is that God comes to you as his children and he chastens you. And why does God chasten us? Hebrews 12, do you know it? He chastens us because he loves us. He knows that this low life, rather than living according to the heavenlies where you positionally have been placed, you're living this low life. And God knows that's not where his children are supposed to be living. That's not the best way to live your life. That's not the way to be a testimony or a witness to others who need to know Jesus Christ. And so he comes and he says, wait a minute, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to chastise them until they come back. You do it with your children all the time. Why do you do it with your children? You do it because you don't love your children? Do you discipline your children because it's just fun to do? If you enjoy disciplining your children, something's wrong. You know why God disciplines his children? He says in Hebrews chapter 12, do you know the passage? Because he loves his children. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's the right way for us to live. He knows what brings the greatest reward to life. He knows how to turn us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we can impact the world around us. He knows. But hear what he says, Hebrews chapter 12. Do, do you know the passage? You're either hungering and thirsting for the word of God that you may grow thereby, thus you're growing and maturing and producing righteousness and fruitfulness of life, or if you're not doing those things and you're living against those things, God is disciplining you in order to get you back on the right path. But here's what he says, Hebrews chapter 12. Do you know the passage? He says, if you are without discipline, you are illegitimate and you are not his child. In other words, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. We're not supposed to be living the way we used to live, according to the ideals we used to follow. We are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're not the same people we used to be. 
And every day we feast ourselves on the Word of God and we pray and we serve the Lord and we are growing and we're maturing and we're becoming more righteous and the fruit of righteousness is being produced in our lives. And when it stops and we stop enjoying His Word, He gives us time to repent on our own, but if we don't do so, He starts disciplining us. You're going the wrong way. You're, going, you're playing in the street. I don't want you in the street. It's dangerous out there in the street. Don't you understand what can happen to you out there? You can get hit by a car. I love you too much to let you keep going down that path. But if you're on that path and you have no discipline, he says, you are illegitimate. You're none of mine. You're not even my child. Now, the truth of the matter is, a lot of you had children like we've had children. I don't ever discipline your children, and you don't ever discipline mine. Through the years of my ministry, there have been a few people who tried to, and I told them to butt out. These are my kids. I take care of my own family. You're God's children. If you objectively understood that Jesus Christ paid the price sufficiently paid the price for all of mankind's sin. Subjectively, you received that gift for yourself. Effectively, it changed who you are. It made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. It created a hunger for his word so that you could grow thereby and begin producing the fruit of righteousness in your life. And when it's not there, you get the discipline. And God says, that's not the pathway you're supposed to be on. My children don't walk that way. My children don't live that way. They don't live that way. And if you don't have that discipline, you've been deceived. You're not even one of my children. The point of this is that Jesus has done everything to save the sinner from his or her sins and to make us brand new and put us on a different path to live a different way and to love different things and to look for different things than the things that the world loves and looks for as fulfillment in life. God has made us a new creation. Now look, a lot of people think they're happy. A lot of people think they're filled with the you know, the excitement of this world, they don't know what it is to have peace with God. God's making people new. Are y'all with me? God's making people new. He's changing people all the time. He's changing people. He's making them, recreating them, not rehabilitating them. He's recreating them all the time. And the good news is, He'll do it for you. He'll do it for you. If you come to Jesus and realize that his death was sufficient, objectively he paid the penalty for every man. Subjectively, you have to receive it for yourself and trust in Christ to be your personal Savior. And when you do, old things are gone. New things come. Because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now listen. He says, because that's the work he does, he says you and I are supposed to be out there telling other people about this work. 
He goes on in verse 19, verse 18, excuse me. Now all things are of God. Who does this work? From beginning to end, who does this work? God does it. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. What's the means that this reconciliation took place, this being made new took place? It's through Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you understand that reconciliation deals with relationships? Do you know the significance of that? Before a person trusts in the Lord Jesus to be his or her savior, they are at odds. They are the enemies of God. God, because he cannot look on sin, had turned away from man. He will never look on sin favorably. Man who is sinning was the enemy of God, shaking his fist in the face of God. God could have left it that way. God could have said, I'm going to punish them all. But God is loving and God is gracious and God is merciful. Man didn't turn to God first. God turned to man first. And you know what he did? He sent his son. His son, Jesus, the only one who could live perfectly according to the law, who never violated it. He, he crossed every T and dotted every I, as they say. In its spirit and in its letter, he was the only one who could live that way because he alone is God. So that when he went to the cross and they nailed him to that tree, God took our sins and the penalty of our sins and Jesus became sin for us. That's what he says, verse 21, for he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. He didn't make him a sinner. Jesus was never a sinner, but he took the penalty and the price of our sins on himself that we might receive from him in return the righteousness of God, thus making us new thus putting us on a new path, leading us in a new direction, taking us in a new way. And all of that takes place through Jesus. You know what happens? God sends his son Jesus. God who cannot look at sin sends his son Jesus and God reconciles himself through Jesus to mankind. I can't overlook your sins. Those sins must be dealt with. I would not be judicially righteous if I just ignored them and passed them by. They must be punished and they must be paid for. And he paid for them in his own son. And now we go out and what do we do? We tell people, you can be reconciled to God. And you know how you're reconciled to God? The same way God was reconciled to you through his son, Jesus Christ. You turn to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I trust you for eternal life. And I trust you for eternal salvation. And in those moments, what Jesus paid for objectively, what, Je what Jesus paid for sufficiently, becomes subjectively yours and efficiently yours so that his righteousness is then credited to your account and now you're in Jesus and you're made a new creation in Christ to live a different way. And he says that ministry of announcing the good news that God has turned toward mankind to offer him a means of pardon God has turned toward mankind. All mankind has to do is be willing to turn to God and come to his son and trust him. And mankind can be 
reconciled. It's a relationship term. The word reconciliation, it's a relationship term, term, where you have been estranged from each other. You no longer have to be estranged from one another, and you can only be made right with one another through Jesus. God being reconciled to man through his son, man being reconciled to God through his son. It's all because of Jesus. That's what he says, verse 18, all things are of God. He's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling, this is the all, the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. You say, what does he mean, not imputing? It means that God graciously provided a plan of pardon. He could have said nothing doing. Your sins will be on you for the rest of eternity and you will pay the price. But he didn't impute them to you. He paid the price. He could have condemned you immediately and sent you to hell the moment you sin. He didn't do that. By the way, you're born a sinner. Before you ever sin, you're born a sinner. He didn't do that. He graciously provided a plan, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? It is the gospel. You can be right with God through Jesus Christ if you'll come to Jesus and you'll trust in Jesus to be your Savior. Hey, not pray a prayer. I'm afraid that we've told our children too often you ought to pray and ask Jesus to save you and they had no idea what they were asking Jesus for. We pray and we ask Jesus for the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Jesus, not just that he existed or that he lived in the past or that he is somebody that was a historical character or that he was a famous person. We put our faith in Jesus as the Savior who gives eternal life. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus, and that's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried, and he rose again. And now this God who is reconciled to man wants you to be reconciled to him through his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is come to Jesus and trust in Jesus, and you'll be a child of God. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the task for all of us. I get to go announce to everybody, God has reconciled himself to man. You can be reconciled to God through the word of reconciliation, through the gospel. You can be reconciled to God. That's great news. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors. I should have worn my tie today. We are his representatives in this world. I don't represent this world. I represent the world, the kingdom of God. You represent the kingdom of God. You represent the king of kings and the Lord of lords in this world. Are y'all with me? Now, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God, listen, God were pleading through us. If we keep our mouths shut, 
We shut the pleading of God through us. We implore you for Christ's sake. You hear it? We implore you. We beg of you for Christ's sake. Be reconciled to God. As a matter of fact, we're going to do something different here. So all the media team just hang loose. He says, be reconciled to God. Some of you are watching me. Some of you are sitting here. And you need to be reconciled to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this message is not over. But I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And when I finish praying, I'll continue the message. But you're watching me live. You're watching this by way of the television broadcast. Or you're sitting in this room with me. God has done everything to save you from your sins. The one thing he will not force you to do is to believe on his son Jesus for eternal life. This is your moment right now in this sermon, right where you are at this second, to say, Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. You are the Savior. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and my trust in you for eternal life, that you will make me a new creation in Christ Jesus and give me the hope that not only carries me through this life, but it'll take me into the life that's yet to come when I leave this world. Just pray that prayer. Something like those words. It's not just the words you say. It's the attitude of your heart to believe on Jesus for the gift of eternal life. Call on him and say, Jesus, save me. Some of you have been listening in my voice week after week after week, and you have yet to call on Jesus, and now is the appointed time. Chapter 6, verse 2, now is the accepted time. Heavenly Father, as I bring this message to a close in just a few moments, I pray that there are men and women who are listening to my voice who have heard me say, that you have done objectively everything that has to be done sufficiently so that subjectively and efficiently your salvation can come to us through your son. Because you have been reconciled to us through the sacrifice of your own son, we can be reconciled to you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be made new creations in Christ Jesus. The old ways have gone. The new ways have come. And now we live hungering and thirsting for you, oh God. As I spoke earlier in this message about how hard it is at the funeral of somebody who doesn't know Jesus, 
my second greatest fear, the most difficult thing I could imagine is people sitting and listening to my voice preach the gospel and have never trusted in Jesus for eternal life and go to a Christless hell from the pews of our church. Of our church. May it never be, O oh God. May it never be, O oh God. May today be the day that that man or that woman or that young person or that college student that single or that married couple says, Jesus, save me and give me the gift of eternal life. In your name I pray. Amen. I want to say three things, four things in closing. He reconciled us to himself. He gives to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given to us the word of reconciliation, the gospel of Jesus, so that we would go and be his representative, his ambassadors in this world, so that God can plead through us. God can plead through us, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. Listen. If you have family that has no interest in the things of God and is living against the things of God and the ways of God and doing so without the discipline of God, you go speak to them. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. You must be reconciled to God. And when you're reconciled to God, you will be made new. That's our role, to be witnesses that people can be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't what you do. It isn't what I do. It's what God did through his son, Jesus, that makes it possible for us to be reconciled to the Father. All I do is go and announce it. People reject it. People receive it. But my responsibility is to be the ambassador. I can't change the message. Do you know any ambassador that changes the message at the consulate where he works from the, uh, from the president or the king for whom he works? Do you know any ambassador who changes the message? I can't change the message. You can't change the message. We just go announce it. You can be reconciled to God. You can be made brand new. You can have a new life in Jesus. You can have a new way of life in Jesus. What I'm saying to you this morning is that God is calling us to be his ambassadors. And I want to give you four practical things. If we're going to be witnesses for Jesus, if we're going to be his ambassadors, if we're going to proclaim the word of reconciliation, if we're going to fulfill as he says here all of us should be doing the ministry of reconciliation by the way that's not just the pastor's job that's the job of every person who knows jesus that's one of the habits of deeply spiritual people they know what jesus has done for them they can't keep it to themselves they want others to know four practical things number one pray for the lost daily there are lost people all around you in your life, everywhere around you. They live in your community. They go to school with you. 
They work in the office with you. They work at the plant with you. They work at the work site with you. They're your family members. They're your friends. Sometimes they're your enemies. We ought to be praying every single day for people, every day for people who are lost without Jesus. Because listen to me, I realize that in the world we live in, the postmodern culture doesn't like what I preach and what a lot of other preachers like me preach, but that doesn't change the message. People who die without Jesus are separated from God and sent to an eternal hell forever. We pray every single day for people who are lost. Number two, live your life honorably. Don't just pray for the lost daily. Live your life honorably. Nobody's ever going to listen to you if your life doesn't back up what you're telling them. Oh, I've been made new, and you live over here like trash. You end up down at the bar drinking like everybody else. You end up watching on television the nakedness and the cursing like everybody else. What good is Jesus to me? He hadn't changed much of you. Live your life honorably. Number three, love others deeply. The people that are in your life, love them deeply. I love you, I love you, I love you. I mean, get involved in their lives. Get to know who they are. Try to understand their hurts and their aches and their pains, their successes, their moments of rejoicing. And and be there. Be a part of their lives. Love them. Love them deeply. People will come to Jesus if we start loving people deeply. Number four, share the gospel boldly. Just share the gospel boldly. Just, Just put it in the seed bag. Just put a whole bunch of the gospel in the seed bag and just everywhere you go, everywhere you go. Do you know what the, do, do you know what the transgender man or woman needs? They need Jesus. Do you know what the homosexual or the adulterer or the fornicator needs? Or the pornographer needs? They need Jesus. They need Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can change them. Do you know what the thief and the reviler, the person who's the corruptest in town, the drug addict and the drunk needs? They need Jesus. They need Jesus. The ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation that we speak, the gospel has been committed to us as the ambassadors as though God is pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. It's our mouth that God wants to use to show others the way to Jesus.